Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara. I'm the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG. And on behalf of KPMG and Ireland Economics, I'm delighted to be joined by Gary Rothschild. Gary is a partner in the Head of Aviation Finance at Credit Apollo, and he's the CEO and President with Merckx. Gary is joining us for the purpose of our Aviation Leaders Report. I should say we're recording this on the 12th of December. Gary, thanks as always for joining us. Before we get into the media discussion, do you want to tell our watchers a little bit about Apollo's place in the aviation finance world and also a little bit about Merckx? Sure. So uh, thanks for having me again. Uh, much appreciate the time. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a head of aviation finance at Apollo on the credit side of the business and also CEO of Merckx Aviation, which is our aircraft leasing uh, platform. Uh, happy that you know this is the 10-year anniversary of Merckx. Uh, so we've been in business for a long time. In addition, I oversee on the credit side, the PK air finance business, as most people would know, is probably the law, largest and longest standing, <laughs> excuse me, uh, alternative debt financier. Uh, it's a business we acquired from GE in 2019. I've continued to grow the business uh, over that time period. Obviously, across Apollo, we touch aviation in many different ways. Uh, on the private equity side, there's been a lot of uh, uh, you know, well-publicized investments uh, as well. And then we have, you know, a, a group of people that buy very structured products for both lessors and, you know, aviation-backed and other aviation-related uh, paper as well. But my primary focus is <clears throat> both the uh, PK business and the uh, Merckx business. That's great. Thanks, Gary. And given that wide breadth of activity, you're very well-placed to comment and just your perspectives on how the recovery in air travel has progressed through the course of 2022. Sure. So I think, uh, you know, the recovery is not a one, one story, right? It's not one uh, encompassing story on the recovery. Rather, it's, you know, as we've seen, it's rather, you know, it evolves and it evolves. It's very jurisdictional dependent and asset uh, dependent. I think we can all recall at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, there was a lot of conversation about when the uh, return to 2019 traffic levels would be. And those are continuing to have been revised outward. And it's always changed. And again, very jurisdictionally based. Uh, I think now IAT is projecting, you know, 2019 levels in 2020-24. But, you know, the, again, you know, we're going to be focused more on specific, you know, impact jurisdictionally. Uh, optimistic. We see a lot of recovery going on. Uh, our own personal, you know, our own arrears on the lessor at Merckx have gone down quite substantially this year. It's really targeted now just on one or two names. Uh, but it's it's an ever-evolving story, uh, you know, that is more regionally focused than, you know, globally. And Gary, maybe looking at that regional piece, as you look out into 23 and you're looking on the opportunity side, are there particular geographies you're focused on, or is it more about the customer? Uh, it's always more about the customer and the particulars of the customer and the asset. Uh, that being said, uh, there's definitely you know geographies that we're more and more concerned of, you know would be more concerned about, and ones that we're you know sort of optimistic about. You know, as we sit here today, I would say you know we kind of look at you know maybe a year from now, looking at Latin America potentially as the most improved player for this. You know, from where we stand today, so maybe at the end of next year. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, out-of-court restructurings and actual restructurings that I still think haven't quite the impact that played through 
uh, a lot of potential demand growth there from the passengers, uh, from the passenger side of things. Uh, on the <clears throat> concern side, you know, it's hard not to answer, you know, China with respect to that. You know, given the continued lockdowns, the continued low level of inoculation, uh, and the impact of kind of continued stress and sort of the uncertain geopolitical situation there as well. Uh, it would be hard not to peg China as something that to kind of continue to, you know, have a little bit of a cautious approach to. Yeah, no, I, I think very understandable. And I guess some hope that as that opens or as ASPAC opens more, it might buffer maybe some of the global recession fears we're seeing. Um, can I ask you, thinking, Gary, a little bit around kind of the, the macroeconomic and geopolitical environment, we've obviously been in a time, a lot of uncertainty and change. We've had the Russian invasion. We have volatile interest rates. We have challenging inflation and we've, you know, FX challenges for, for lots of non-US based airlines. When you're sizing up all those challenges, what, what kind of issues have they given rise for Apollo and Merck's over the last year? Well, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the rising interest rates, and I think it's just not just Apollo and Merck's, but the entire market is, you know, having to deal with the, you know, the rising interest rate and the kind of challenges and threats of, you know, inflation generally. Uh, inflation obviously could have the impact of dampening passenger demand, and we haven't seen that as yet. There's been a lot of pent up, you know, sort of, you know, demand coming out of COVID and people have built up savings and they seem to want to spend and travel. Uh, but, you know, there's at some point, you know, there could be an impact on the inflation rates. You know, more relevant to sort of the lessor business right now is the little bit of the squeeze going on uh, from rising interest rates and the lag uh, of the increase in lease rates, both in the secondary market and, and almost probably more seeing it more so in the new delivery market. Uh, it hasn't quite caught up uh, with the cost of financing, be it, you know, there's pocketed capital that don't necessarily rely on back leveraging it in, in the capital in the markets, either bank or capital markets, or they have unsecured capital or just money that needs still to be spent. Uh, you know, I think that pendulum will swing a little bit in, in, in favor of you know the lessor community in, in the years in the year ahead. But uh, that squeeze is definitely something that is you know prevalent today for for the lessors. And, and Gary, maybe moving on to kind of the debt and capital market side, you know, we have seen probably through the course of 21, the ability of the investment grade lessors to raise significant capital at low rates. Obviously, given the volatile market, not a lot have gone back in 22. But if you look at kind of the players in the market, if you're not very large with a backing like yourselves or an institutional parent or an IG rated lessor, is that there? Is that a very challenging market to be in if you don't have that kind of scale and support behind you? Yeah, yeah. You know, everything is. You know, whether it, you know, is an advantage or not. You know, this is all a relative game. So, being an IG lessor and having a relative advantage to having cheaper cost of capital is, is certainly an advantage. But, you know, in the long run, that's just one element, right? One advantage is not determinative of the final outcome. Uh, I think everyone who watched the soccer games this weekend saw that, you know, just being taller for the Dutch, you know, that was one advantage, but, uh, you know, wasn't determined of the final outcome of the score. So certainly all things being equal, better to be an IG lessor than not, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not determinative of the outcome. If I ask you on the capital markets, another perspective of that is around ABS transactions. It's obviously an area that Merck's have played substantially in in the past. 
we saw a very sentiment driven market like all the capital markets we saw that market really reopen very strongly in 21 appreciate not listed in outside but definitely on the kind of debt supported side post russia it's been challenged and a bit stagnated can i get your thoughts on on where that market sits now and kind of your expectations over how it might evolve over the course of 2023 sure uh so a little history lesson here i'm long enough to old enough rather and been in this business long enough to you know provide that history lesson i think we all know that that market has been open and shut on numerous times right so coming out of the recession uh the market shut down for five years uh in fact Merck was instrumental in reopening that market we did the first abs transaction in 2013 in aabs so certainly a lot of experience in shutdowns and openings of the market from where we sit uh you know we had a nice run with the capital markets, uh, as you rightly pointed out. You know, it was shut down for a little while and came back in 2021. Merck's took advantage of that opening as well, and we had a very successful MAPS 2021-1 issuance. Uh, the I do expect it to open. We just saw one transaction recently get done, albeit on sort of revised market conditions. I understand there's a number of transactions in the pipeline uh, that. You know, I do anticipate to have seen more issuances in 2023. You know, we have great relationships here at Merck's with the uh, with the bank markets. We're always evaluating what's the most efficient source of you know capital for us. Uh, we will look forward to continue to work with banks. We you know even strengthen I think our bank relationships through COVID, uh, both not just from our payment performance but through our communication and our transparency of the issues. So you know we 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 would anticipate accessing both the bank market and when the capital markets has terms that are on a more attractive basis, which I would anticipate that being competitive again, sort of sometime in 2023, taking advantage of that market as well. And can I get your thoughts maybe a little bit more on that traditional aviation lending market? Is there the right availability of credit that's out there? And then can you talk to me in your thoughts a little around the non-traditional lending platforms? So you have PK there, which right. you at the, the start of the call, we've seen probably a proliferation of those platforms over the last couple of years, not unlike yourselves, predominantly private equity backed. So it'd be great to get your thoughts just on, on is the current aviation debt market traditional side working and just how important that non-traditional lending piece might become? Yeah, they're obviously both important. I think, you know, COVID and the distress created a vacuum for non-traditional lenders to come into the space a little bit more. It was clearly a pullback in both capacity and the terms that banks were willing to do these transactions on and private, you know, private equity and other platforms came rushing into the space. You know, and if you sit where we are today, you know, what I talked about, the squeeze between, you know, higher interest rates in front and in fact widening spreads uh, and the underlying lease rates that, you know, airlines are willing to pay, you know, there's a good argument that on a relative valve basis, you know, being on the lending side of this equation is the better place to be today. Uh, that being said, we're always in an evolving and changing landscape. The alternative lenders, though, are not immune from these market forces as well. So, so you know, they not only have to, you know, you know, if they're winning the relative valve argument relative to leasing, they also have to fight the internal relative value fight with other segments, you know, on their platforms, because you know, they're, they're backed by large private equity platforms or, you know, alternative asset managers that can, you know, deploy capital away from one space to another. 
and the back leveraging their back their liability side of the balance sheet is challenged in this environment as well. We have the advantage here at PK being sort of the longest standing, probably the largest alternative lender with tons of resources to kind of help address these problems. And we have committed, you know, and a committed uh, a committed owner and a committed capital to this space. So I think that gives you know the PK business uh, a little bit of a competitive leg up on a relative basis from other alternative lenders. I think all alternative lenders will continue to be an important financier to this space. They do something a little bit different than the traditional bank lenders. Uh, so I would see it continue to grow. But yeah, as I said, you know those lenders are also having to deal with you know the broader market forces as well uh, in, in the current environment. And that probably feeds into the investor side, uh, Gary, when you think about either, you know, aircraft as an asset class and their attractiveness or the types of investors we've seen come to aviation finance. And just given the scale and breadth of Bahalo, I'd be very curious on your thoughts over the types of investors we're seeing. And have you seen any interesting trends post-COVID, right, over the last couple of years in types of investors? Is it still the same types of capital, albeit the names have changed, or are we seeing any evolution there? I think it's across the board, right? You've seen some traditional sort of distressed investors come in early. You've seen some sovereign money come in. Uh, you've seen some uh, just money that is probably looking to deploy at market rather than getting an alpha to market, right? And just getting a market share on that. Uh, I think, you know, there's been so many changes in the cycles. It's been so quick throughout this COVID that I think some of the money that came in, the distress element, you know, maybe didn't present itself as long as some people had thought. And then with rising interest rates, uh, you know, the liability side of the model sort of became challenged. So I think people probably had to kind of revise some of their business plans. What we know about this space is it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for, you know, it's not a good place for tourist capital. And so I think what we see in this advent of people coming to the cap into the space, as opposed to some other cycles, is I think people have learned that and recognized that so most of this capital, almost all of this capital has aligned itself with experienced platforms, with people who you know, have the know-how and the knowledge and the experience to be able to execute successfully in this space. And I think that ultimately that's a positive uh, for, for, for the industry. Maybe moving to the leasing market more generally, Gary, you know, you talk to lessors like Merck's or others, and typically what they'll talk about is deepening of relationships between lessors and airlines over the course of the pandemic. One, in ensuring a lot of airline survival together with the government supports. And two, providing that flexibility of finance that they you know, potentially appreciate more than they did three years ago. Can I ask your thoughts, has the pandemic given rise to a shift in the popularity and importance of leasing um, and whether or not that kind of you know, uptick in lease percentage is likely to continue in the near term? Well, I think there's a couple of things driving that. I think your point on relationships is key. We definitely have talked to airlines that now have said, you know, hey, we know you were there for us. You you worked with us through this problem, and we appreciate that. And not just, uh, you know, that they want to do leasing, but, you know, that I think drives more who they want to do leasing with, right? I think some of these airlines have narrowed their books a little bit uh, and want to know that they're doing business with somebody who, you know, has their back in, in times of trouble. Uh, as far as the overall percentage, there's two trends going on. I've seen a lot of airlines recently have talked about owning their own assets and certainly, you know, with a, a view to better control, 
like a controller, they can manage their expenses better and manage their fleet. On the other hand, you know, COVID and the pandemic and in the in the environment today has stressed a lot of airlines' balance sheets. So the option of 100% financing uh, is certainly more attractive. So I think that push pull is going to kind of keep the equilibrium, you know, creeping up into the 40s into 50%. You know, I, I'm not making a prediction that it's going to kind of go above that uh, at any time, but I think that sort of equilibrium point will probably remain relatively stable, you know, in, in at least in the foreseeable future. And Gary, moving on to maybe the trading environment, um, and we're in a very high inflationary environment. So one, curious about your thoughts on what you've seen from an asset values perspective. Um, and then secondly, just how functional at the moment is the trading environment? We might come to OEMs in a moment, but we've seen those delays creating arguably a slightly dysfunctional trading uh, situation. So we'd welcome your thoughts on those two areas. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been reported and from what we've seen, trading levels were way down in, in secondary market trading levels were way down in 2022. And in part, it's just simple math, right? You have a fixed rate asset, you know, you know an asset subject to a fixed rate lease, we have higher financing costs. That's going to drive down, you know, create lower prices uh and then you know that makes it less attractive for certain you know uh people to sell assets in addition you know the reduced revenue the reduced earnings from you know deferrals or frankly even the russia situation has you know made certain lessors not want to you know part with earnings uh as as much and there weren't as many new deliveries so there wasn't as a challenge on the balance sheets from growth where they had to move things off I think as we come out of this uh, into 2023, that's going to change. We talked about the new platforms. A lot of these new platforms are going to look to pry assets away. And as you know, deliveries ramp up, as exposures start to become an issue, as growth becomes an issue for uh, you know constraints on growth for some of the larger order book lessors, I, I think you'll start to see you know an increased frequency and an increased volume of trading as well. And, and on the value side, as you say, that there's nearly a push and pull. We have an inflationary environment. But we've higher interest rates and therefore an unleased aircraft might not seem as attractive. Just your thoughts, does that mean we're seeing an uptick in values or is it kind of holding or decreasing it in? And, and again, taking it in very broad terms. Yeah, I think in broad terms, you know, there is that push pull. There's also an argument that inflation is maybe not, you know, doesn't have the impact of increasing aircraft values because at the end of the day, the airlines, can they push along those prices? Can they, you know, are their performance going to be impacted by them, by the inflation? And if they are, then they're going to you know, reduce the number of aircraft they need if there's stress on the airline. So there's there's a counter argument to the inflation rather than just the natural assumption that inflation is going to rock, you know, cre create increased asset prices. Uh, we tend to look at things on a you know on a lease encumbered basis on a particular situation. So you know the value of the asset isn't really just a standalone. It's what's the, what's the contract associated with and who's the operator. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, I think inflationary pressures and, you know, with uh, interest rates eventually, I think, being moderated somewhat. I think we are, you know, in a recovery period with respect to a lot of assets from, you know, from where we are today, which, of course, you know, where we are today is coming out of the, you know, a little bit of stress values coming out of the pandemic. And on to the OEMs, Gary, to get your thoughts on, again, we talked about how the relationship with airlines and lessors has evolved uh, over the course of the pandemic. Have we seen any evolution and a relationship between the OEMs and the lessors? You know, I think so. Uh, you know, this is a very relationship 
driven market. Uh, and so, you know, you know, everybody knows everybody uh, in, in our, in our space. Uh, I think, you know, in the beginning, there were definitely some pressure points in the pandemic, right? Some very kind of sticky situations that created some tensions, but I think just like the way we supported the lessors, I think the OEMs also appreciated the fact that, you know, we're all in this together. And I think we needed to become um, more flexible and more creative in how we address some of these issues and some of these solutions. And so I th think that brought a new approach from some of the OEMs on working together with the lessor community on how we can assist uh, them uh, in some of the, you know, the more broad issues that we're facing uh, the market now. Whether that remains in place when times are good remains to be seen. You know, it's, uh, everything is about you know leverage at any particular time. But I think right now we're in a little bit period of you know more cooperative working together between lessors and OEMs. And, and in terms, again, looking at the macro environment and lessors and order books, you know, obviously leasing companies can either acquire new aircraft and say on lease back market or direct orders with, with the two OEMs. Um, your thoughts over the medium term, do you think we're going to see a smaller number of lessors placing orders on a go forward basis? How do you see that going? Well, you know, there's a lot of backlog on that. So there's not, you know, if you want to order, depending on the asset type, you got to have a pretty good crystal ball looking into the future on that. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if that's going to, you know, if there's going to be a ramp up, we have not right now have a, uh, an order book or, or looking at making a new order book, uh, you know, a new position, uh, presently. That being said, you know, we have seen some talk and some, you know, we've heard some talk in the market about order positions being traded in the market. Uh, and so I think there's, you know, some potential of that. We've seen that, uh, you know, the announcement of the Alafco trade, for instance, you know, came along with a order book uh, position there. And so you might see more of that, lessors getting their hands on other people's order books rather than making new ones themselves. Yeah, as you say, when, when slots are that confined, it becomes potentially more valuable asset, subject to your escalation provisions, uh, clearly within your OEM, uh, uh, your OEM contracts. Um, Gary, moving on to a, a different part of the market that's probably performed very strongly post-COVID, which is around cargo, always been a relatively spiky market, but some would say we've seen a step change post-COVID, e-commerce, which was trending well, but now is trending stronger. Can I get your thoughts on the opportunities in cargo? And is that an area you guys play in or plan to play in? No, we do. We, we own a, a number of cargo aircraft at Merck, and we finance a number of cargo aircraft through the PK business. And I've always been, you know, fairly have a robust view on the cargo market. Uh, you know, you're right, it's spikier. You can you can mistime that market, uh, certainly. And I think uh, there is that risk of it becoming a little bit top-heavy right now. The one thing we know is there'll likely be somewhat of an overbuild of certain asset types on this conversion market. We're starting to see a little bit of softening in, you know, who's taking these converted aircraft and at what lease rates under what terms they are right now. Uh, but I do think there has been a little bit of a step change with respect to, you know, the volume of stuff, you know, in the volume of cargo in from e-commerce. Uh, clearly, when as wide bodies are coming back online, as international travel ramps up, you know, that belly capacity will become available again in passenger aircraft, which could present some challenges for the wide body, you know, the dedicated wide body uh, market. Uh, but uh, I, you know, we're, you know, across the firm are very often optimistic uh, about the cargo space, you know, as, you know, my brethren on the 
private equity side have you know have recently made a big investment on the uh, you know in Atlas. Yeah, no, I, I saw that come through and it was quite interesting. And are are there when you're considering a cargo asset versus maybe a commercial aircraft? Are there different challenges that are thrown out there? Have you guys looked when you play in that space around conversions? Just curious as to, you know, when you assess that business versus maybe more the mainstream leasing that you do, are there nuances between the two? Well, depending on what you're buying and, you know, and when you're buying it in its life cycle, certainly on the, you know, the, you know, factory wide body, you don't have any of the conversion issues. We were very early in that game. We bought a 777 freighter years ago, and in fact, we're the first to transition a 777 freighter from one carrier to, to, uh, to another operator. And clearly, transitioning a freight aircraft has somewhat less complexity as far than a passenger aircraft. You, know, you don't have to you know, order new seats uh, and have some, some of those transition costs, particularly on the wide bodies that you have to deal with on a passenger aircraft. Uh, but, you know, we've also recently converted a freighter, been very involved in that process. You have to stay on top of that and watch the spend uh, build on that. But, you know, I wouldn't say it's a step change different. You know, at the end of the day, you have an aircraft, you have a couple engines, uh, you have maintenance cycles. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say there's a, you know, a step change in sort of the level of complexity involved. No, understood, understood. And Gary, great insights as always. In closing, um, Kind of opportunities we talk to the market, um, and then those uncertainties and challenges that are there as well. As you you know sit here in, in kind of mid December, you're looking out into 2023. What are your optimism levels like? So you know, I would say you know, if the question is you know, more optimistic or less optimistic than we were a year ago, I would say more optimistic. Obviously, we see some broad recoveries across the space. Uh, you know, passenger traffic continues to grow. You know. Quite robustly uh, at Apollo, you know, you know, again, a lot of this is on a relative basis. We have a great, you know, parent. We have lots of dedicated capital. We have tons of resources. We can solve problems with respect to, you know, if we need to rate our debt and, and things of that nature that make us more uh, competitive and more an efficient financier. And so, given that, and given how we performed through COVID, how well the businesses have. You know, performed you know on the PK business and even on the leasing side on a relative basis. I think we're in a super position to take advantage of sort of the growth in the market and you know really be a big participant in the recovery overall. Gary, on that optimistic note, I'd like to thank you as always on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, and I wish both you, Apollo, and Merck's a very successful 23. Thank you for the time. Always enjoyable. Thank you.